continuing in the Hebrews study in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has, more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Hebrews 3, 1 to 6. This, uh, um, you know, sometimes there's, there's just portions of scripture. You have to, you, you've read them a, a number of times, I suppose. You really have to dig into God's word to figure out what it's saying because, and on some levels, this thing seems like it's all over the place. You know what I mean? Uh, and in some places, to me, Hebrews seems like it's scattered uh, on a cursory reading, but, and of course, it's not. Um, so we need to consider Jesus, and that's sort of, I guess, the main point of all this as we continue to go through Hebrews is consider Jesus. Um, Octavius Winslow has a nice little booklet called Consider Jesus, or it might be Consider Thou Jesus. You know, ancient dead guy, um, but a great book on all the different things about Jesus. Maybe you, you could use it almost as a devotional. Uh, a couple, two, three pages for each sort of thing he talks about, the riches of Jesus, the poverty of Jesus, etc. Everything about Jesus, uh, many things about Jesus you would want to think of. Consider Jesus. And this is where we pick up today with that. Uh, so I think about things sometimes in an unusual way. But as we go to the book of Hebrews, it strikes me, it's very interesting that there is nothing in this letter to the Hebrews that mentions Jesus' threat that the temple is going to be destroyed. And that has always driven me crazy about Hebrews. And it still drives me crazy. I have no resolution to it. But never is this mentioned in the entire book of Hebrews. And 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 I think that has contributed to the various efforts to understand when Hebrews was written. Was it written after the temple sacrifices came to an end? Was it written, I mean, after the temple was destroyed? Was it written before the uh, temple was destroyed? And to me, it's clearly... As I'll, I'll get to in a minute, you know, the status of that. Um, but you would think that that would come up at some point, because to me that's such a powerful point. And uh, I don't know who the author of Hebrews is, and neither does anybody else. Um, but it would be interesting to find out why that wasn't included in the book of Hebrews. Uh, unless, of course, it's not written to Jews in Jerusalem, but somewhere else, which is also possible. But then that wouldn't reduce the impact of reminding them that this reality was forthcoming. Surely, again, it, the destruction of the temple did not happen already, or there would be no need to write about the sacrifices that were clearly taking place still, for whatever reason. I mean, the Jews were still doing their Jewish sacrificial system, not not the new believers, but the Jews. The Jews no longer are. They no longer have a sacrificial system. Whatever Judaism is, it isn't what it was. Um, uh, the, the destruction of the temple would obviously have rendered those things useless. There'd be no need, really, to talk about those as much. So... It's interesting to me that that's not in there. I mean, Jesus made that point very powerfully that the temple was going to be destroyed at some point. And I, I'm very strong myself on my My convictions on it are fairly strong that uh, there may be some disagreement among some, but Jesus clearly was talking about the destruction of the temple within the next 40, 50 years. I mean, that's, that's obvious. 
uh, you take some real linguistic gymnastics and some real playing around with Matthew 24 to make it look like somehow this big thing that was coming wasn't going to come in the next 40 or 50 years. So compelling that some, that some people believe all of Matthew, the entire discourse, without getting into the whole all of that discourse, is about things that would happen to that generation. You know, wherever you fall on that, the point remains to me rather striking that the destruction of the temple, the forthcoming destruction of the ch- temple is never mentioned, right? I mean, you would think that would be a great place because we'll see as we go through, there are some, there are some references to Jesus' teaching, right? So you can see whoever wrote the letter to the Hebrews picks up on things that Jesus taught, obviously. I mean, I hate to overstate the obvious, right? Because, because the, um, all those that wrote the gospels, those, the inspired writers, these are people giving Jesus teachings, Jesus' words. They're not making these things up out of, you know, out of whole cloth. But it just is very compelling to me. Um, and it's not a big part of the lesson. I'm open to your thoughts on it. But very interesting to me that the, the, the coming destruction of the temple is never mentioned. To a group of people that were considering the old temple sacrifices, the old covenant, which is, which is, you can't divorce the two. You can't separate the two. Old covenant and temple sacrifices go hand in hand. Why do I know that? Because we make such a big deal later in the book of Hebrews about the better priesthood and the better sacrifice. So very interesting to me that that never sort of comes up. Um, and yet God clearly knows what he's doing, what he was writing. But I'd, I'd like to, I, I didn't look far and wide for, for some uh, interaction on that. Uh, there are some Hebrew scholars locally, I suppose, that I could tap into, but I'd like to get their thoughts. Any thoughts on that, Gary or Barry or anyone else? Yeah. Well, these people care desperately about the old thing. But but they care so much about it, and going back to it, that's my point. Though my point would be, why not say, look, our Lord Jesus told us these things are going to be completely destroyed. So what are you going? What are you participating in this for? And Jesus said the whole thing is going to be destroyed. Why would you still be going onward in this? Which it was. You'd think. Yeah. Yeah. Something. Right. Yeah. Thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anything's sort of a possibility. I Yes. Mm-hmm. 
this whole system being put away. He said, it's going to be put away. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's key too. I, my thought is, uh, as much as all those things are accurate, the Olivet Discourse seems to me get very clear that there's language in that that makes it impossible to be not within the next forty, fifty, sixty years, like a specific thing. So yes, the return of Jesus definitely, right, right. Is it? Yeah, it was. Yep, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Right, exactly. I mean, if it was written after the destruction of the temple, I'd say, boy, these people really are hurting people, man. Yeah, Gary. The author of Hebrews may not have known what we now know, because maybe the author was writing before Matthew or Luke was written. So the only thing that would have been in circulation would have been, um, you know, the oral communication that Christ had had made known, and it may not have been as... It's possible. It's possible. Possibly. Even, even, right, and even, that's possible, and even Mark, I think, includes Jesus is greater than the temple, but I'm, I'm not sure. Um, just, you know, the temple was everything in Jewish thought. It was everything. It was Christ, in a sense, to them. And I mean, as, as much as Christ is, we're Christocentric, they were temple-centric. <laughs> you, you didn't talk, nothing that had to do with your life, you didn't take a step without somehow the temple being involved in your thought process, or whatever, it was just always there. So, anyway... I just throw that out there to maybe give you something to ponder. Yeah. Yeah, well, they can. Mm. Oh, yeah. They're talking to rocks. Uh, and the other interesting thing with Hebrews, as much as a lot of the scriptures, you know, it's and this is the way God chose to do things. Christ is never definitively, in a sense, called God. So, I mean, there are things you would think that Jesus could be called directly God in some places, where we just seem to... And yet there's so many places where everything but that, like you never hear Jesus say sort of, I am Yahweh, you know, the Father and I are one, that kind of thing. And it clearly is, and Jesus is Jehovah. So it it, it clearly is, and I, that's just an, another interesting thing that comes to my mind with the high Christology of Hebrews, is that there's, everything is done, and I, and I suspect that God did it because there was no category, there was no category yet in their minds for that. It, it, it would have just as there are other things in their minds that couldn't make sense yet because there wasn't sort of the cognitive space for it. So anyway, there's the tangential rabbit trail stuff that's interesting but gives us no answers. Let's get into the meat of the text. Verse 1, some, uh, concentrating on some things here. Brothers and sisters, heavenly calling, apostle and high priest of our confession. It's a heavily loaded verse here. And you know... If, if our calling is is not from this world, and we've responded to that calling, which we have, then why would there still be an expectation that only things in this world could satisfy? And only things in this world would be a reference to anything temple, anything sacrificial, anything 
still that was part of the old sort of order of things, or, or that the deprivation of things in this world can prevent the heavenly call from sort of fully being effectual. Why isn't it that, you know, so he, he's talking about a heavenly calling that we have. Brothers, holy brothers and sisters who share in this heavenly calling. Um, it's important for us to sort of be mindful of that heavenly calling. Why would he, why bring this up, you know? Uh, we have to look back to the end of chapter 2, right, where Jesus partook of our nature so that he could be made like his brothers in every respect. And so we share some of the same calling that he does. Um, so we have, uh, we have, we have this, um, the high priest, the apostle and high priest of our confession, certainly the first time Jesus is referred to as an apostle, right? The, the term apostle is applied to Jesus. Um, so, this is somebody sort of pointed this out, that the common goal of the high priest and the apostle is enabling the listeners, his brothers and sisters, to arrive at their heavenly calling. Okay, that's, that's, that's the whole function of Jesus, uh, apostleship and his, his high priestly, um, his high priestly call, his heavenly call, is to help us along in our heavenly call to arrive at what our heavenly call is calling us to. What's an apostle anyway? Okay, yeah, that's what we would say. I mean, in other words, we would say there's no more apostles because of X, Y, Z. But that that's true. That's what they saw and that's what they did. But what does the word apostle mean? Is a better word. Uh, yeah, yeah, sent one, right? One who was sent, right? So, and yeah, and there is a lot of there's there's plenty of debate. You know, I've got a friend, a dear brother in the Lord. That's uh, you know, he's he's more of a charismatic bent than sort of we are. But he would say, you know, the silly, this ridiculous notion that there's no more apostles, he says, it's sort of like crippling the church, you know, as if God doesn't have anything to say anymore. But now I could easily disagree with him, but i got to make sure I understand what he means when he says apostle, you know. And apostle is, apostle is used in, in, in different ways. and you know. But for Jesus to be the apostle is to be the one sent from God, right? Certainly. And um, so so even though... We don't sort of think of Jesus as an apostle, but by the very fact that he has spoken for God and that God has sent him, he, he's the one through whom God spoke, is a unique and a final way. Uh, he, he's sort of the ultimate apostle, isn't he? Because he's not just bringing a message, he's embodying the message. <laughs> Jesus is a, is the kind of a, is a uniquely apost, he's, he's a unique apostle in the sense that he is the incarnate message. <laughs> he's the um, incarnate reason for ascending in, to begin with. Um, so he, and, and as we know, this has come up and will come up again in much more fullness later in the book. He is the high priest of our confession. And in that old, again, in that very hard for us to know because, so some of us came from Roman Catholic background and we might think of hierarchy within religious order. Okay. So we might think of, you know, uh, the local priest, uh, and you might think then of the bishop and then the archbishops and the cardinals and then I don't know if there's such a thing as an arch cardinal or a hyper cardinal, but there's a college of cardinals, right? And the college of cardinals, as we know, they're the ones that protect the pope from being accused of any wrongdoing. Ah, you said that. So, no, but, and then you have the pope, right? And the cardinals help select the pope. So we, we have a, we have a hierarchy in our minds, right? Yes. I guess so, yeah. Yeah, yes, yes. Yep. Right. In all that history. Right. 
Some of us might have grown up around Episcopal faiths that also have a hierarchy, which we're familiar with the term priest. But, I mean, none of us are familiar with high priests, except what we've learned from. I mean, we, 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 we're not immersed in. It's hard for us to fully appreciate, I think, in some ways, although, you know, what, what high priest meant to them. We, we, I mean, we can because we know what Jesus is. And, and so Jesus to us is what the idea of a high priest would be to them. But we didn't live with the whole idea of a high priest all the time, you know, sort of growing up. Uh, we grew up with, with uh, factual misunderstandings. If you grew up Roman Catholic, I don't know how, how the rest of you grew up. Uh, but, you know, we, we, your focus was constantly sort of on a man and the way that Christ is mediated to us through really other men. Right? So we, we don't have that richness of understanding what high priest must have meant to the Jews, you know. He is, though, the high priest of our confession, as the writer is saying to the original audience. So that meant an awful lot about that, you know. And what is meant by our confession? What things did they confess, do you think? What's, what do you think is meant by that? He's the high priest of our, in the apostle, of our confession. What's what's going on here? Yeah. And doesn't doctrine and confession, doesn't that sound like awful papery or parchmenty? And like separate from the reality of our mind, but but you're absolutely right. But I think people misunderstand. Right, it has to be documented. But what is on paper is what is deeply entrenched in us. It's our whole spiritual sort of understanding thing. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Yep, it really is. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession of all that we confess, of all that we hold to that has to do with God and with sin and with covenants. You know. He's the apostle, he's the sent one, he's the high priest of, of what we confess to be true about everything, yeah. Mm. Mm. They didn't have a lot of, you know, they didn't all have Bibles and things, so their confession was part of the oral tradition of the community that was maintained and held together by people that sort of kept it in check as well. There were there were systems and places that kept things in check uh, to make sure the truth was being communicated. So even though it was sort of oral for a lot of people, that doesn't make it any less sort of authoritative because the written became somewhat based on some of the oral. That's fascinating stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's. I don't want to confuse it with community with conversation, right? I mean, don't, because with you know, like the old King James, uh, the old English. Conversations, your entire lifestyle, but our confession, that which we hold to, that what we would, that we would say we believe in, but yeah, I think all of that. Okay, so he's the, so consider him, okay? Consider him. Consider this Jesus, the high priest of our confession, how, how important that is to consider. Um, I'll talk a little bit more. Uh, as we go through about the importance of what considering is. 
sort of the act of considering. Not being considerate, but considering, right? Thinking about, dwelling upon. This is a, there's so much going on in Hebrews. I mean, for any one person, you know, you have to be divinely inspired for any one person to be able to take on, if a, you know, how blessed we are to have God raise up people that will care so much that they understand fully where they're going astray and what God wants them to know. God's passion and love is in every verse of Scripture. And it's just, to me, it's spellbinding. Uh, what God does in putting together a book like Hebrews. And man, this is, Hebrews is advanced Jesus stuff in a way, isn't it? And it's basic. It's built on the basics of Jesus, but it's so, it's so profoundly um, important for us. Um, so, uh, the exhortation is to consider Jesus who was faithful, right? Because the second verse comes, it says, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in God's house. So we have faithful Jesus and faithful Moses. So the, the words for this verse, faithful Jesus, faithful Moses, uh, Moses. But we're to consider Jesus the high, the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful. So we're to consider his faithfulness. Right? Jesus' faithfulness. We need to consider this and think about this. Uh, Jesus was faithful. He became like you and I so that we could become like him. And so therefore the text says, consider his faithfulness. He's the faithful and apostle and high priest of the heavenly calling. Jesus was faithful to his calling, and so are we also to be faithful to our heavenly calling. That's why he says in verse 1, he refers to our heavenly calling. Right? And I think the idea is that considering, considering is a practice that is formational to us. Considering is a formational discipline. The things that we consider, we ruminate over in our minds. Um, sometimes we need, it's too bad we don't have three, ba- three, three brains in the way a cow has three stomachs, right? We could think about it once, then bring it up and chew the, chew the, the mental and intellectual cud, you know, just, just until we get it fully digested, right? To consider his faithfulness and sort of We'll see later on in Hebrews what that faithfulness looked like, and we already know, you know, what that faithfulness cost him, but his faithfulness to the Father. Um, and so as we consider, we become. So we must look at what Jesus did and, and who Jesus is, right? And so uh, again, it's important for the author of this letter to contrast Jesus to something that they're clinging to so tightly. He's already done it with angels, the author. Has already done it with angels. Um, you know, it was just a side. It was in my studies. I was reading as you're trying to find out who the author is. Some people thought that perhaps Priscilla was the author of Hebrews at one point. Um, but there was some I read, and I wouldn't begin to pretend to understand this, except there were some uh, the way that the Greek language works. There were words used that expressed who the author was that leave little room to suggest that he was anything but male. Um, and I thought to myself, before I, when I first read that, I was thinking to myself, it could be, maybe they left her name off because she was a woman, you know. And the testimony of a woman was, was not highly regarded in those days. Priscilla had an outstanding, stellar reputation in the churches of, of Christ, you know, in, in Corinth and places where uh, her and her husband had, they had to set Apollo straight, you know. I mean, uh, uh, Priscilla was, was involved in, in setting Apollo straight, who was powerful in the Lord, but only spoke about the baptism of John. And, um, so, uh, this, this little side information. 
Um, so we, we have to look at who he is. Now, so, so we're looking at Moses now because we, we've done the angel thing. We, we're doing the Moses thing now. So Moses was faithful in all God's house. What is, what is meant by God's house, do you suppose, here at this point? To say that Moses was faithful in God's house, what do you, what do you think that meant? Yeah, I, I think it's, I think it is definitely his people. What else? Yeah, I, I think it's both. I really do. I mean, it's just because, you know, we're going to talk later on about what it means to be the house of God now. But, but to be over God's house then, I think everything was. I mean, God didn't indwell his people the way Christ indwells his people now. So it is, to me, still very temple oriented. And you can't, you can't separate who they are from the temple, so it, it has that level of importance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. It was. Yeah, I mean, and, and so why bring up Moses at all, in a sense? Right? Obviously, they were aware that Moses was faithful. So they had to have considered Moses faithful. They held Moses in very high esteem, obviously, right? Um so we know that Moses at one point, you know, he struck the rock, and that's a different discussion altogether. Even that doesn't mean he wasn't faithful in all that he was doing. But uh, they thought of returning to the old covenant, to the Mosaic, or to sticking with the Mosaic law, which was odd because there was really no covenant to return to. <laughs> I mean, I know they don't realize that yet, uh, even though the Jews were continuing this sacrificial system, and some of the early Christians were, interestingly, still involved in synagogue life a little bit, so they also had to deal with, this transitional time, getting away from the temple. I don't think it sort of happened like that for some, though it did for Paul. Uh, in what ways was Moses faithful? How, how could they say so? So the writer is, is, contra- is saying, you know, Moses was, Jesus was faithful, Moses was faithful. And something about the faithfulness of Moses, it's like, so I don't want to reduce this to something as silly as sales, but anytime you're trying to get someone to replace a product they have, you point out that the benefits of this particular product have the same product as this product, except better. You know what I mean? So it's like you know you you, you don't want people don't want to give up sort of the product they have in sales, right? They have it for a reason. So when you're promoting a product to them, you have to at least have the same benefits and or better, Tony. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 Lots of places. Yes. That's exactly right. I had his intercession down first. I mean, I think that's the foremost thing. I think that's the... Did you have a hand up? I was just going to say, like, yeah, he was obedient to God. He did what God... Yes. He did what... Exactly what God asked him to do. Yeah. Yes. That's right. <laughs> Kelly. <laughs> well, I think, uh, what's the difference? Well, so what is faith? I mean, faith is, a, uh, faith is a disposition of the heart, mind, and soul that has confident trust in something. And so our confession, that which we confess, would proceed from our faith, I think. It's an articulation of our faith. Right? When we confess something, we're articulating something that we believe. So it's, 
it's certainly wound, it's bound up in our faith. It's not the same thing as our faith. It's our confession is our common sharing, our common giving expression to, our common vocalization of, or writing down of, our shared faith. Does that answer your question? Okay, so, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's not a bad point, yeah. Not bad for 80. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Rather odd that Jesus has to be compared to angels and perhaps odd that he needs to be compared to Moses at all. I mean, to me, this is another thing as I was thinking about this. I'm looking at the order and structure of Hebrews. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 that we looked at in the beginning should be sufficient to end all conversation about everything. I mean, what more can you say about Jesus than what was said in the first part of the chapter 1, verses 1 through 3? Exactly. You know what I'm saying? I mean, what more can you possibly say? He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He holds all things together. He made atonement. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's the exact representation of the image of God. The exact representation. So now why are we going over Moses and angels? What are we covering this tough for? Hmm. I think the, I think you're right. I mean, that's part of the reason. I mean, it almost seems like Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 should come at the very end of Hebrews, because it's building up to this crescendo of who Jesus is. But it's interesting that it starts that way. And I think this suggests that the recipients of the letter, to Mark's point, though they share a common confession about Jesus, they've gone numb in letting it get deep into their being and deep at that level of constant conviction and awe at the reality of it all, which is very much what we can relate to. Let's face it, how often do we live in, the, in that sort of place? Just letting the truth of the depth of who Jesus is. And all, of all the Hebrews, how often do we walk around with the Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 attitude? I was in Woodstock yesterday at the fair. I don't think I thought about the wonder of Jesus consciously for the three or four hours I was here, unless I saw something that, you know. So you, you see, there are things that might trigger your dependence on God, right? So you're hungry and you give thanks to God because there's food everywhere, right? Or, or you have a, you know, a lustful thought because of the way people dress, and you say, "Oh God, you know, protect me from this." Or you, you, you and your wife want to go in different directions, right? And husbands, you want to love your wife like Christ loves the church. You say, "All right, God, help me, help me to love my." Well, not that I had to. It's easy to love, but the the whole idea of um, of of just why isn't it always there? It's because, like you said, what are we used to? And um. God has to get us unused to. I preached a message once in Hebrews called "Getting You Used to Something Better." Right? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. I know, huh? But I got my bison burger, so I was happy with it. It's almost as though the author makes this incredible statement in 1, 1 to 3, but due to the lack of considering Jesus, they can't grasp it. So they, they have to be shepherded into the understanding that 1, 1 to 3 already ought to be clear. It's, it's not unlike uh, the experience of Jesus himself. Well, if, if you take a look back in Luke, I was thinking of this as well. Um, I'm just going to quickly go to Luke 18, 31 to 34. 
And and so this is this is this is what we're like, right? And he taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man made by the prophets will be accomplished. Okay, so this is the Hebrews one one to three part in for equating the two. For he will be lit look at the specificity with which Jesus uses. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles, he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. After and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They didn't grasp what was said. They didn't grasp it even until after it happened. So even though the stuff is there, as he says. Everything that's written in the prophets about me has to be accomplished. And yet, the whole idea of being spit upon, crucified, etc., makes no sense to them. So they have everything the prophets spoke about, and they have a complete inability to make the connection between what Jesus just said and what all the prophets spoke about. And so there's something like that going on as well. Um, okay. Uh, back to Hebrews. So there's, a, there's this tendency that we have to miss the obvious or to miss the greatness of it all. Um, and, and I know that still goes on, right? Doesn't it? Doesn't it still go Do we still miss the, grace, the greatness of it all? It, it is frustrating to me uh, in a lot of ways. Um, verses 3 and 4. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And it's, you know, as it says, verse sort of seems on the one hand, like it's plunked in there. It's like, of all the analogies available to contrast things greater than other things, the author compares the house to the builder. And, you know, it's like, um, in, in, so he's, he's trying to make a contrast of degrees. So to that degree, the glory of Jesus is that much greater than the, and what, the, what does he say this is and what does it mean? Why the house? Um, I think it's important that the readers understand that Jesus, uh, or, or why is it important, maybe? So so we have the house and the, the who built the thing, right? I guess that makes sense. All right, so what, why they chose that analogy, I just got to move beyond that a little bit, is, right, because obviously, hey, that's a cool house. Yeah, this is the guy that built it, right? You, you like to meet the person that built things. If you saw something amazing, say, hey, this is the guy that did that. This is the guy that made that, you know? I look at some of the amazing buildings around the different parts of the world. It'd be neat to meet Frank Lloyd Wright, right? That'd be, he'd be a neat guy to talk to because he was the architect of so many magnificent things. We we like to meet the creators of things. Yesterday we were talking to the lady creating the sand uh, thing, right? That's one of the neat things. You get to talk to the people that are actually creating it and doing it. Um, so, yeah, that person has more glory than the thing that they made, right? Um, maybe, maybe part of it's obvious. And then we know, well, God made all things, right? So God's the builder of the house. He's the builder of everything. So maybe it's just uh, obvious. Um, but why is it important that the readers understand that Jesus is worthy of more glory? But what is it about glory that would be meaningful to the recipients of the letter? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. Gary. Yeah, and it's, it's, you know, I mean, it's, it goes back to my point a minute ago. It shouldn't be necessary to do that because of what was said about Jesus in 1, 1 to 3. But then, as, yeah, as Mark said, we just, we're used to certain things. We don't, 
we don't we need to somehow be shaken out of it. So we could say that's greater, but then someone comes along and says, "Well, uh, he's even greater than what you you know what you hold to." He's getting into some real specifics that they can relate to, because they haven't grasped the whole Hebrews one one to three thing, which is why they're going back in the first place, right? So so now he has to dismantle it a different way. So it, it is a very interesting approach um, that this writer took. It must have been an, an extremely um, profound person because, yes, obviously it's inspired by God, but we're not talking about a robot that just sat there and dictated what God said. God used, must have been such a profound, like Paul was so profound, you know, philosophically and intellectually engaged and, and spiritually focused. Um, just reading, there's a couple of lines here from a sermon by, uh, an old sermon by David Wilkinson. God allowed Moses to see his glory so that he might be changed by the sight of it. And the same is true for us today. God reveals his glory to us so that by seeing it, we might be changed into his very own image. And again, the revelation of God's glory should be the wellspring of all our worship. We ought to regularly lay claim to his glory, testifying, Lord, I know you're holy and just and you won't wink at sin, but I've also seen your glory and I know you're not out to destroy me. Very important to see the glory of God. And so it's very important also because glory was so important to them. Um, they say Jesus is worthy of more glory because he possesses more glory, and that glory changes us in a way the Mosaic Law cannot. The Mosaic Law couldn't change anybody from anything. That wasn't the purpose of it. That wasn't the purpose of it. Um, we see the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. And so we must ask ourselves, what is worthy of more glory than Jesus also in our own lives? What is worthy of more glory than Jesus? And we can't lie and say nothing, because something is. I mean, not really, not ultimately, but we might say, what for a little while seemed more glorious than Jesus to you? Um, what's sort of wrong with your glory uh, recep- reception? Your glory antenna is not working, you know? Uh, we're going to pop over here to Numbers for a minute, chapter 12, because this idea that Moses was faithful in all my house, this is a this is a partial quote anyway of something back in no- uh, Numbers, chapter 12. Okay, uh, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, blah, blah, blah. These things go on. And uh, and they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Uh, now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, come out here, you three, to the tent of meeting. Trouble, this is not good, right? And the Lord came down on a pillar of cloud, stood at the entrance of the tent, and called Aaron and Miriam, and they heard him, and they came forward and said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak within a dream. Not so of my servant Moses. Um, When I speak, I'm sorry, not so of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. This is where that verse and that idea comes from. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled, right? And then Miriam became leprous, and Aaron said to Moses, Oh, Lord, don't punish us. And and then Moses went and interceded, right? Uh, But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, should she not be ashamed seven days? So, put her outside the camp for seven days. 
because what's happened to her in, in the way that she spoke about Moses is worth every bit as much as putting her out of, get her out of my sight for seven days. If her father spit in her face, we do the same thing. So you have this really intense sort of, and is it possible here, why, why bring this up? Is it possible here that the people were speaking against Jesus? Kind of, since the writers to this point have been extolling the wonder of Jesus, right? Later we do have warning about trampling underfoot the Son of God in chapter 10. And in chapter 6 we have the warning about crucifying the Son of God anew. So if God's hot anger was aroused against those who spoke against Moses, how much more against those who spoke against Jesus? And by going back, they are basically saying Jesus is not sufficient. And is there not a manner of speaking against the Son? I think it clearly is. Why, 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 why bring that up? God brings that up, I think, to bring that, I, I think the writer brought that up to bring that whole thing to mind, because that would be something that they knew. Moses was faithful on my house. So much so that this is the, the distinction that I made between Moses and everyone else. So, two things are happening. He's reminding them of how excellent Moses is. They, they, they know. Okay? But then he's also saying, he's also saying to them that, you're, you're about to, some of you are thinking about just putting this Jesus aside, trampling him underfoot and crucifying him again, crucifying him anew. So I, th- I don't think it's coincidental that that's brought up here. Uh, I think that was very deliberate, and I bet you it was to call that particular thing to mind. Um, and you have, just so you know, you know, it says Moses was a faithful servant in all my house. That is the only term servant, the only term, uh, you know, that shows up in the entire New Testament. That term is used only once, it's used of Moses. And it comes from the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. But that word for servant that's translated servant is used only once in the entire New Testament, and that's of Moses. So, and we know that servant and bond servant shows up throughout the, the entire New Testament. But this word is unique for Moses. There's something unique about Moses. He's very special. I think also this warning it's in the way that uh, this call, this reference to, this idea of what it meant for Moses to be faithful in all God's house and the danger that the author is beginning to get in touch with. You know, you, you, you're believing wrong things, and this is the danger of that, is going to come up in verse 7, right? Which is whoever is covering that next week. I don't know who has that. But next week we get a really deep warnings. We get the first of our really profound warnings, okay? But we're setting all that up. Why does the warning have to be so intense? Because of everything that's come before it. You walk away from this, right? And, and and you're walking into this. You walk away from Hebrews 3, 6 with the wrong attitude and just stepping into Hebrews 3, 7. Look out, right? Uh, Moses' ministry um, in verse 5. Go back to this. We're fitting an awful lot in this week, but, you know, there's an awful lot here. Um, whoops. Long chapter. Sorry about that. Now Moses is, <clears throat> was faithful in all God's house as a servant. What? To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Alright, it's interesting, right? So, Moses' ministry was not just getting people to the physical promised land, as important as that was. That was very important. He was testifying what would be spoken by God in the future. Well, what does that mean? Well, God spoke decisively to us in Christ, didn't he? Again, back to the beginning of Hebrews. Long ago, in the times past, God spoke to us through various ways and things, but today he has spoken to us through Jesus. So that's the, that's the, that's the thing that's being pointed to. God spoke decisively in Christ. 
more than just talking about it, right? I mean, Christ is the revelation. He's the incarnation of God. Everything to do with the revelation of God. So that's that's sort of what I think is meant by Moses testified to things that God would talk about later. It's an interesting way to, again, use words. I've looked at a number of translations. They all say the same thing. Testify to what would later be spoken of by God. Not testifying to, you know, who God would send later, but testify to what would be spoken later by God. That's interesting, isn't it? What's later? Well, that's what we're going to get to that in a minute. We're getting, we're getting to that now. Did Moses know he was testifying about God would say later? Did he know that? Did Moses know he was testifying about what would come later? Um, because, and perhaps he did, because he did say that God will raise up a prophet like me, listen to him, uh, and I think that Moses obviously then believed it would be in his time, or, or not in his time, but after he was gone and some of the people remained, otherwise, why say it that way? He's going to raise up a prophet like me, listen to him. He's not thinking about you and I, he didn't write this to you and me. He's not thinking of us all these 15, 1600 years later. Um... The recipients of that word from Moses expected that prophet to be in their time. They could not have thought this was going to be a thousand years ahead. We don't live that way. So I find, at last, I'm just not comfortable with that. Yet, Peter does say that it was announced to them that they were not serving themselves but you. Now, that also applies mostly to the prophets. Although, obviously, Moses was a prophet, right? You see, I have to think through these things. Yeah, it's deep, but I'm not any deeper than the text. I mean, I'm, I'm not going any deeper than the text itself. Like, I'm not trying to complicate things. I'm trying to unravel what, when we first look at this thing, we look at these five, six verses and we say, you know, it's just a little weird. When I first read it, it looks a little weird until you really dig in. This is what we're doing here. Um, it does, does that mean that they knew that you was, again, 1,600 years later. I don't think so. Uh, uh, Edward Clowney writes in, in this passage in First Peter that I just quoted, Peter is not saying that the prophets had no ministry to their own time or that they spoke in inspired riddles that made no sense to them or their hearers. Thank God he said that. The very diligence of their search for better understanding shows how the prophecies challenged and intrigued them. They kept looking into them. I want to understand, what is God showing me? And we're like that, aren't we? We, we, we? We're like that. So we like to talk in, in, in Christianity about shadows, and I think we overuse it. I think we overuse the word shadow. So yeah, well, that was a shadow of Christ, and we just say that, and that's it. Or that was a shadow or a type of Christ to come. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of those guys that can get, like, agitated by oversimplification. It's like we say those things, repeat those things, and I think sometimes we rob them of what, what the meaning is and what's really going on. Uh, so, so when we say it was a shadow of something to come, it's almost as if we're suggesting they didn't. It, it didn't mean anything to them, but it did mean something to them. Uh, wouldn't have been clear. I was looking up images of shadows online because lots of times shadows are cast by something that looks very little like the original thing. Right. In fact, there are some people that make a living off of creating shadows, and then you see the original thing and say, "Wow, how did he even think the shadow would look like that?" But the shadow does mean something. The, the, there was something very meaningful here. And I think sometimes when we just say it was a shadow or a type, we know that. But for the most part, they didn't know that. They didn't know that. And I think that's an important thing to remember because otherwise we can begin to read things back into things that were written 1,500 years ago that have no place there. And that, 
applies to all kinds of things in Scripture, whether we're dragging 20th century science into the Genesis 1, or we're trying to do other things that we ought not be doing because it wasn't written that way for that reason, right? So, I say all of that to just make it obvious to us that although it was written, you know, they were serving, as the Scripture says, they were serving generations to come. It still meant something very meaningful to them. Otherwise, why say and have it be codified? Um, verse 6. I know we're going fast, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Jesus has more glory and honor. Jesus and Moses both had something to do with the formation of God's people. God is the builder, the creator of God's people. Jesus is the son, whereas Moses is a servant in the house. Moses is in the house, Jesus is over the house. Big difference. Right? To this point in the in the text, Jesus has been mentioned as the son six times. Now he says that Jesus is the son over God's house. Who is God's house now? At this point in Hebrews. God's people, obviously, right? Um, Jesus said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Over God's house. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. So what's going on here is this, uh, um, this, this, um, this big distinction between Moses sort of being a servant in the house and being a son who is over the house. And it's, it's obvious, right? For those very reasons we just looked at, this is a critical importance. Again, you're clinging to Moses, but... And there was even a point when Jesus says, Moses wrote of me. You know, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life. They thought that that was the answer. That was everything. And these people have somewhat the same problem. Um, we need to look quickly at um, the, the last part of this. Um, we are his house. If, if indeed... We hold fast our confidence and our boasting hope in, in several translations, although not the ESV ad, till the end. Um, so this means that since we're God's household and Christ is over the house and Moses is in the house with us, <laughs> that Jesus is the center of our hope and attention, not Moses and not the Mosaic law. Which is, again, we have to understand this is what they were going back to. None of us have ever been, ever been, ever been bound by the Mosaic Law. Not once. We have never been. The Mosaic Law was not written to us, and the Mosaic Law was not for us. There's all kinds of things in there that we learn, because all scriptures are prior and profitable, but we have never been under the Mosaic Law. Um, so it's difficult for us to know, again, what it means to constantly be under a Mosaic Law. In a certain sense, it's like trying to live in the realm of political correctness. Every time you turn around, you say the wrong thing. Every time you open your mouth, you breathe the wrong thing. You think the wrong thing. You're tolerant. You're, you're, that's what the Mosaic Law was like. 632 things said, wrong, 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 wrong. Do this, 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 this. We don't, hopefully we don't think that way about Christ in that way. Sometimes maybe we go to that. But we don't know what it's like to live under the Mosaic Law. These people did. They had a whole, this audience had a whole history of being under the Mosaic Law, and missing what it was there for in the first place. They shouldn't have been as caught up in it as they were, for the reasons that they were, right? Uh, 
Because again, the Mosaic Law wasn't intended to be their source of hope. It wasn't intended to be their source of attention. It wasn't intended... Uh, and, and again, though, but that's why the Pharisees ended up being rebuked by Jesus. You think you have eternal life in these things. Genuine faith is persevering to the end faith. Because it's faith that's fixed on the final results. Faith that is fixed on finally seeing Jesus in all his glory and being with him. That's what our faith is in. It isn't faith that fails before that. For if it is, then it must be asked whether being with the exalted Christ was ever our hope in the first place. Genuine faith is persevering faith because it's faith in the way things finally are going to be and with who we're going to finally be with. It's again the illustration of the weekend that I refer to from time to time. Our expectation is that Sunday is coming and we're going to persevere until Sunday. My confidence, in a sense, when I was thinking about worshiping with God's people and everything, is Sunday is coming. Now, we don't get to Wednesday and give up. If we do, our hope was never truly fixed on Sunday. It was more of a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday's come and gone and it's been too hard. I throw in the towel. But Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday were never intended to be Sunday. They were never... Ex- Sunday has its own... And I know that everyone has its own day to itself. I know that, all right? There are people that don't worship on Sunday. They worship some other time. I would argue there's nothing wrong with that if you're not a Sunday worshiper. If you do church on Wednesday, some of you would argue that with me, and I'm not going to have that argument here. But the point still is, whatever day is so special, you know, in our worship and everything else, the other days, like Tuesday Bible study, might have a little taste of it, you know. And then lastly, we need to hold fast to the confidence and boasting that we hope in. And how do we do that? You know, there's a move you can do on someone where you can force anyone, no matter how strong, no matter how big they are, no matter how tight they're clutching something, to get it out of their hand. There's a nerves in between the knuckles. And you can squeeze in between. There's a certain pressure point in between those knuckles. If you hit that point just right, Mark Campbell will open up his hand and you'll get what's in there. Okay? Not so with our faith. Nothing can do that to us. That's our. That's We have that kind of confident boasting. Um, in fact, Jesus said no one can do that. No one can pluck you out of my hand, didn't he? Right? How do we do that? How do we hold fast to the confidence and the boasting? In our hope. What is hope again? Let me define it for you as I have to. It's anticipatory expectation that infuses everything we do. It's anticipatory expectation that infuses everything we do. It's not, I hope the weather is nice. I hope to see you next week. I hope you, you do okay with your surgery. I hope all that stuff. That's not what the word hope means for us. Hope is anticipatory expectation. It's things that we expect with an anticipation, and that anticipation, that expectation, infuses everything we do, or or can. And where does that come from? Considering Jesus. It comes all back full circle to that, consider Jesus, because that's, so in, in, in those six verses, and again, it's, to teach these things and to learn them myself is to give as much information about what's going on in the heads of these people as we can possibly get at so that we can understand what it meant to them before we can make a right application of what it means to us. We know what it is, or we need to continue to know and to learn to what it means to consider Jesus and all the ways that he's greater than whatever else that we might have set up as great in our life. What are we trusting in? So we may know all this about Jesus, and yet, and yet we could still treat ideal health as more important, right? Or a certain job, or a certain look about us, right? And so, 
God's always reminding us that Jesus is greater than, than that. Just like he had to do to them. So we certainly can relate because other things do, we attribute glory to. Right? I mean, we live in a whole culture that would have us go back to the world, right? We knew, they wanted to go back to, uh, to the Mosaic Law and the Mosaic, Mosaic Code and all that. We have a culture that, you know, we're born again that's always wanted to draw us back into the world. And we have to constantly be comparing Jesus to everything else. He, he's, he's the queen on the chessboard. Only because the queen can move around more places than the king. So, I mean, yeah, you die by beating the king, but the queen's got all the moves, right? So, uh, he's the king on the chess, he's the king and the queen on the chessboard, right? God is neither male nor female, but, uh, but, oh, getting back to Jesus, consider him. So, somebody pray for us and let that prayer have something to do with considering Jesus.